the Read to Lead podcast, episode 38. Hi, I'm Bill McGowan, co-author of Pitch Perfect, How to Say It Right the First Time, Every Time. And though he still may be trying to get it right, I encourage you to listen just the same. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. I can help parents be able to show their kids what you, what is possible in life, that starts to shift things. And I really hope that that's the, the legacy I'm leaving behind. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Thank you, Joy. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Each and every week, we sit down with a successful and inspiring author and talk about his or her latest book. And depending on their area of expertise, thoughts on leadership, personal development, career, marketing, business, and entrepreneurship. Now, in this episode, we chat with Jamie Tardy, author of The Eventual Millionaire, How Anyone Can Be an Entrepreneur and Successfully Grow Their Startup. Now, in today's episode, Jamie will help us understand why she believes passion is a myth, how the millionaires she's talked to come up with their million-dollar business ideas, and the techniques they use to overcome fears and excuses. Yes, that's right. Millionaires suffer from them, just like good old you and me. First, I want to let you know that Module 1 of Podcaster Academy is being offered absolutely free this coming Thursday night, April 3rd, 2014. If you'd like to attend for free, you can do that by signing up, registering right now, readtoleadpodcast.com slash free. Even if you can't be there Thursday evening, you can still register and get the recording after the fact. If you're one of the first Oh, 20 or so people to do so because we've only got about 20 spots left. Again, to register for Thursday night's free module, readtoleadpodcast.com slash free. Jamie Tardy is business coach and speaker who helps entrepreneurs to achieve their goals. Uh, she's the founder of eventualmillionaire.com, a website and podcast that features a new millionaire interview each week that focuses on personal finance and entrepreneurship. Uh, she made her exit from the corporate world after finding herself $70,000 in debt, realizing that she hated her job. So with an ambitious goal and a strategic plan, she was out of debt and out of the job she hated in just 16 months. Now, Jamie's helping others to find freedom, money, and the work they love. And she's been featured on CNN, MSN, Kiplinger's Fox Business, and more. And she's the author of the new Eventual Millionaire, How Anyone Can Be an Entrepreneur and successfully grow their startup. We are thrilled to have her on the Read to Lead podcast. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. Jamie has interviewed over 140 different millionaires for her podcast and has been able to take what she's learned and put it into her new book. Jamie, I know you only interview a certain kind of millionaire, though, right? I personally only interview people that made their money through business. And the reason why, well, number one, I'm a business coach, so that makes sense. But the, the reason why is a long time ago, I read a book by Thomas Stanley called The Millionaire Next Door. And he had done so many uh, pieces of research that said that the most common way that people became millionaires or had a net worth of at least a million dollars was through business. 
that intrigued me, right? And thankfully, I was a business coach then too. So I was like, hey, this is great. I want to talk to the people that have done it. So instead of just getting the data, which is great, right? Thomas Stanley did amazing work in his book and uh, dealing with a whole bunch of data. I wanted to hear the stories behind that data. And so that's why I started interviewing that many millionaires. I think it's important to point out, too, that you established very early in the book that it's about more than just money. You say that you don't need money to find meaning, which is quite refreshing. Well, it's funny. So my story sort of goes that when I was little, I wanted to be a millionaire because my parents didn't have a lot. And, and it was one of those things where you just assume the money will make you happy. So I think I was eight when I, I told my mom that I wanted to be a millionaire, which is kind of weird for a little eight-year-old girl in the middle of nowhere in Maine, right? But the funny thing is, is that I sort of went after the money and it's sort of the story that you hear over and over and over again from people, right? You're going after the quote unquote success. And of course, when I was about 24 or 25, I had the realization of, oh, shoot, I've been working my way towards something and I'm miserable. Yes, I had money, um, but it wasn't really about that. And so I gave up the goal of being a millionaire. Mm. And the way I, I define an eventual millionaire is someone who has a goal to be a millionaire, right? Eventually, but they want to do it on their own terms. So they want to have an enjoyable life and an enjoyable business too. And I think that's the side of things that I didn't have before. I had the money. My life was, you know, not in my own control and stressed to the max working 60, 70 hours a week. And mm. so I wanted to change that. So I let go of the money so I could build up the life I wanted. And then I've added that goal back in, right? So to me, we still have to be millionaires. It's, it's sad to say, um, but looking at when I retire, I'll need at least $3 million in order to live an okay retirement at about $50,000 a year. And so looking at that and going, oh, shoot, uh, you know, a million dollars isn't what it used to be um, is something that I think we all need to embrace instead of, I think we're rejecting it like, oh, money's bad. And I think we need to change our view on that. In chapter two, you call it start working with the money that you have now, sort of staying with that theme of money for just a minute. How did you apply that to your own circumstances? We talked a little bit about sort of the debt kind of pressure you were under and working through that. Starting with the money you have now, how, what did that look like in, in your circumstances in your life? Well, I thought I wasn't that... Um Stupid with money, right? I mean, I I, I had a good uh, job. I had I went to school to a great school. I'm a numbers geek, so I thought I wasn't that bad at money. But in reality, looking at it, I, the day I had to become honest with myself was the day that I added up all that debt. And I was like, it wasn't even credit card debt. So I, was, I thought I was pretty good, right? <laughs> um, but adding it all up and going, I was 24 years old in $70,000 in debt, which is kind of ridiculous, right? <laughs> and I had a $250,000 house, mm. you know? And so looking at those pieces and going, okay, maybe I'm in the position I'm in where I feel like I have to stay in my corporate job because I got myself into this. Mm. And being able to be honest with yourself and realizing that, okay, I've got to work with what I have now. Even, I mean, thankfully I had made quite a bit um, a year at the corporate job I had, but even if you have no money at all, like making the right choices with whatever you have makes a huge difference. So when it starts to grow, right? And this is from a lot of the millionaires that I've interviewed too. When they start doing the right things, when they don't have a lot of money, that's how they start to accumulate wealth. And it's not as though they change in the, the blink of an eye of like, oh, great, now I'm a spender. So you hit the million dollar mark and you're like, oh, I'm going to spend it all. Well, then you're not a millionaire anymore. 
right? right? So whatever we need to do, we need to cultivate those habits, which kind of are annoying sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody likes uh, delving into the, the money beliefs and, and dealing with um, figuring out your finances. But if you can do that, if you can really dig deep and start looking and learning on how you look at money, that's what's going to get you to change in the long term. And later in that uh, chapter, you, you lay out these principles of spending money in ways that, that make you, you happy. Uh, and, and I was intrigued by this. And one of them, you, you talk about doing a 180 of what is typically our default way of thinking about it. We tend to be a sort of a consume now, pay later kind of, uh, of culture. What does the opposite of that look like? You call it a, a pay now, consume later mentality. Well, and it's funny because that's what it used to be, right? Before we had credit cards, before we had (laughs) loans, that's what you had to do. It was common sense, right? You had to save up your money and pay for it. So even when I was a little kid, I would save up my money. I remember getting a cordless phone when I was younger. Like I saved up, I think it was like 60 or $70 for a young kid. That's a lot of money. And so saving up that much money for a cordless phone, and then you have the reward, right? Yeah, I get the phone. This is exciting. Instead, what we're doing now is we're getting that happiness, right? That when you buy something, the excitement, the dopamine, all that stuff that goes up. If you buy something but don't have to pay for it, hey, that's even better, right? Woo! <laughs> like, I didn't have to wait. I can have it right now. Mm. And I think that's the thing that's tough, especially in my generation. I thought when I was 19 that I deserved, I don't know if, I mean, that's a bad word, right? Um, but I thought that I should be able to have the same stuff my parents had, even though they worked their entire life <laughs> to get it, right? So when I was 19, I had a house. I had two cars, I had two dogs, right? At 19 years old, which is a little ridiculous. And so, and it was my, well, he was uh, my fiance at the time, but you know what I mean? It wasn't just me, but, but still like looking at that and going at 19, I had the same thing that my parents had when they were, you know, 40, Mm. but I owed it all. Mm, (laughs) So so I could have the luxury of having it. Um, But then the thing that I didn't realize back then was it forced me to make decisions that maybe I didn't want to make. So I had to work 40 hours a week when I was in college because I had to pay for everything. Right. right? And so I wasn't able to enjoy college as much. I felt like I was, uh, you know, an adult at 19. Um, And so those things that I look back now and go, oh, that was kind of silly. But I thought that was the way that we were supposed to do it because I was trained that, you know, that's what success is. You have a house and you have cars and nobody sees your bank statements. It doesn't really matter. right? (laughs) And so I definitely looked successful on the outside, but looking on the inside, I wasn't paying for anything until later. And that made me totally stuck. So when I was in that good job, I was the breadwinner. I had to have that stable income. Otherwise, we would lose everything. And so I felt so stuck, even if I wasn't happy. And that's where the change started happening. Kind of the golden handcuffs. You were in a place where you you, you had all this debt. You really It was tough to leave the job. I mean, like you said, you had to kind of work at it over a period of months to be able to do that. But that's, that's more than a lot of people do. So I commend you for having the discipline that it took to really get out from under that. So you could leave your job and do the things you wanted to do. Yeah, it wasn't fun. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I was like, yay, let's try and get out of debt. Uh, But I think that's the piece, right? And I know it sounds cliche with the golden handcuffs. Everybody's talking about this stuff lately. Like, Mm. oh, I went to college, even though, you know, that's I gotten tons of debt. Maybe that's not the way I should have gone. And so looking at at that stuff, even though it's cliche, right, Mm. we're all finding ourselves in this point Um, and being able to look around and go, okay, what's truly important in my life? Mm. 
comparatively to what we think is going to make us happy. And being able to do some of the research um, and figure it out is really interesting, especially being able to ask millionaires how they feel about this and how they feel about money. Most of the time, the reason why they're business owners, yeah, is for the money as like a side note, but it's mostly because they want control, right? They want freedom of their own time. They want to be able to make the choices that they want to make without having, you know, this um, golden handcuffs around you. (laughs) So being able to have that as a, as a conscious choice is really important. I want to stay on that for just a moment. I had a chance to chat with uh, Chris Brogan a few weeks ago, and he's got a new book coming out called The Freaks Shall Inherit the Earth. And it's kind of, it focuses among other things on this idea of, of, you know, how the nature of work uh, is, is changing going forward the best option uh, some argue for many of us is it necessarily going to include working for somebody else but rather doing our own thing what are your thoughts on that I think I know the answer but I just want to hear it from you <laughs> I love this question I love Chris Chris is actually from Maine too so it's ah, kind yeah. of funny um, and so being able to uh, look into the future I'm a, I love looking into the future and being able to sort of see where things are going because of course we can't really predict it we can read about it a lot <laughs> so that's about it we can look at the past um, but even just from my experience um, interviewing all these millionaires and looking at all my friends who are my age even the people that have amazing degrees uh, that are friends of mine that are like, oh, shoot, maybe I should be paying attention to what Jamie's saying, right? <laughs> Took him a long time. Mm. But uh, but all that fun stuff, now that they can see, I can live in Austin and go back to Maine for two months in the summer because I'm location independent. Like that stuff is amazing stuff that a lot of the times a, a regular job can't give you. Mm. A lot of the people that I know now, and especially the millionaires, care about that freedom and control so much that they can't have a regular job. And I think we're starting to shift into that mentality a little, which I think is really exciting, right? There's lots of opportunity out there. You talk to any of the millionaires I interview, it's not doom and gloom economy stuff. It's going, okay, great. What other opportunities are coming up? We have new technology all the time. We have brand new things coming up um, with the internet and with everything else. We're connected way more. This is a the beginning process of a lot of the technology and, um, and looking at that and going, okay, what opportunities are out there? It's just, it's an exciting time right now. Uh, coming from a radio background, um, I, I realized about five years ago that that I wasn't going to be doing radio forever, and and that radio wasn't necessarily going to be radio for forever either. I mean, that industry's uh, being uh, you know turned upside down, just like many others, the music industry, publishing, and that sort of thing. And so I had to start laying groundwork several years ago to be prepared for a time which came last year where I would be off on my own. But something that really held me back for a long time was fears and excuses, and, and they often go hand in hand. And I'd be curious to know how the millionaires you've talked to tend to differ in their approach uh, to these two areas, fears and excuses? Well, one of the reasons why I interview millionaires, number one, and this was for my own thing, because I used to put them on a pedestal, Mm. right? I'd be like, oh my gosh, they're better or smarter or luckier (laughs) or whatever it is than, than little old me from a small town in Maine, right? And looking at that and then being able to interview this many, right? So it's not as though I've interviewed 10 and, I, and I'm and i like, oh, they're kind of cool. <laughs> uh, many of them are good friends of mine, like really good friends of mine. And thankfully, right? I'm very lucky to be able to <laughs> call my, my job or career interviewing millionaires, right? It's really pretty cool. <laughs> um, but being able to know that they're just regular people. It's huge. And that's what I'm trying to do the best to the best of my ability with these interviews. I want these people to look normal and real because they are 
Right. So <laughs> kind of funny. We, we tend to put celebrities on a pedestal. We put, you know, really successful people. They have struggles and fears and excuses, too. And so being able to bring those out, it was so fun. <laughs> I love I love hearing that stuff from them because it makes me feel so much better. Right. So being able to go, OK, do you have fear? And I surveyed a bunch of people and asked a bunch of the millionaires for the book. And so many of them were like, yeah, <laughs> come on. Everybody has fears. What I like to say, though, is that the millionaires, I think what really separates them is they're able to recognize it as fear, number one. And they have excuses, too, because the exact same reasons we do. But they're able to recognize those excuses and move past them anyway. So they lean into the fear and the excuses a little bit more than most people. Right. Most people will allow those things to stop them. And don't get me wrong. It's a progression. It's not like they're like, oh, done, sold. <laughs> like, <laughs> I see that fear. I'm pushing right past it. Um, some of them, actually, a few of them were, were, were like that. And I was ridiculously impressed going, <laughs> I am not like you. Um, but most of them, thankfully, were not, right? It was one of those things where they really had to push past their comfort zone and move forward. And it was an ever-evolving process. And so knowing that, though... And making it more of a priority in your life. Because I'm sure as you went through, Jeff, now looking back at it, it seems so much easier. I remember when I quit my job, I was so scared. <laughs> I kept like having, trying to have contingency plans of like, yeah. well, they said I could always come back if I needed to. And, <laughs> you know, I have six months of an emergency fund because I care about safety and my family. I mean, I had a baby right, <laughs> right yeah. at that time too. And that stuff is scary. Don't get me wrong. But now, of course, it's been like seven or eight years now. So looking back, I'm going, wow, why did I not do that when I was 20 or, or younger? Um, and of course, hindsight is 20, 20. Um, but if you can listen to people that have able to, to, done, to do it, like if you've listened to me, if you've listened to your story, Jeff, and go, hey, they did it. They don't seem that much <laughs> smarter than me, right? No. <laughs> I'm sure you are, Jeff. I don't know about me. Um, but being able to see other people do it. I mean, I remember when I was trying to quit my job, I looked online and this again was such a long time ago. There weren't a lot of stories. Thankfully, we have podcasts now of everybody telling, you know, their hero's journey. Mm. So you can have that inspiration of, wow, they sound like me. I can do it. I couldn't find a story like mine. So I made just at hundred thousand dollars a year. My husband was a professional juggler and performer. Mm. He hates it when I call him a professional juggler. He's a performer. He's amazing at what he does now. But at the time, it was a very variable interest, you know, variable uh, paycheck. And mm. it, it wasn't one of those things that was really stable. And I cared about stability. And so I kept looking for anyone that had <laughs> a crazy, you know, $70,000 in debt. I wanted to quit my job, but I was the breadwinner. Like, I couldn't find anyone that was like that. And it was really hard to find that inspiration to push me through because I didn't know if it was even possible from anybody else. Nowadays, you can listen to so many podcasts. I'm sure you bring on amazing people that tell their story. And if we can know that it's possible, that's when our mindset starts to shift. That's when we can sort of push past the fear a little bit because we go, oh, I listened to these five people. I seem like I have a similar story. They did it. Well, I can always try it too. And I think that's a huge piece that's going to help people get past what they need to do. Yeah. I think of that Jim Rohn quote, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I think a lot of folks don't realize that that can mean spending time with you or me or whoever uh, in the context of a podcast. It doesn't necessarily have to be a face-to-face -face interaction all the time, every time. I need, I need to say something on that too, because again, I before I ever interviewed millionaires, when I was going through this, right, I, again, small town, right? Small, I mean, my town is about 2,000 people or so. 
And I listened to so many podcasts. I read so many books. And in interviewing the millionaires, they say that maybe they didn't have a mentor, but they had authors they would love to read and learn more about. And I think it's that continually investing in yourself and your growth and really staying inspired to know, even if no one around you believes it. <laughs> when when I left my job, everyone was like, you're dumb, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> it looked like I had the best job ever. I mean, I was traveling around the country, um, it, but it was miserable. I was stuck in hotels all the time. So on the surface, it looked really good. And people were judging based on that. And of course, when you can start really paying attention to the things that you really want and then stay motivated, whether it be through, you know, just podcast or whoever's podcast, whatever books you can to continually stay inspired. You're right. You don't, I mean, definitely work on getting those five people of being, you know, crazy, amazing supporters of you. Um, but if you can't start with this, that's definitely step number one. I know for me, uh, the uh, anticipation of folks saying things like that, what are you, what are you crazy leaving your job just kept me pushing the date back further and further and further until finally last year, the decision was made for me and I had no choice but to leave the nest and jump out on my own. And I haven't looked back since. So, Well, exactly. Because how do you feel now? Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> See, exactly. Isn't that so funny? How yeah. we, we deny ourselves something that could be really awesome just because, you know, it might be bad. Well, in that uh, the millionaires you interview have all started their own businesses, they're self-made millionaires, in other words. What are, what are some of the more common ways they've managed to find the ideas for their business? I love this question. Nobody's really <laughs> asked this question yet. I have a whole thing in my book on this. <laughs> I'm about asking questions about the book. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Jeff. Because I found it really interesting. When I when I have had business ideas, you always go, is this really a million dollar idea? Right? <laughs> and so <laughs> I wanted to find out what were million dollar ideas and how they ended up finding theirs. And so I found that there were three key ways that they did it. Uh, one was if they already worked for someone else and they had a specific skill, they were able to leverage that and start their own business sort of either solopreneur wise on their own and then grow that to be bigger or start like a firm or something using the knowledge that they already had. Right. Mm. So they looked at their boss. They're like, I could probably do this. <laughs> right. And then they started their own. So that's definitely one way. And the cool thing about that is you already have the skills. You need to acquire the business knowledge, which is a whole skill in itself, but at least you have the, the core skills that, you, that you've had. So that's usually one um, way that a lot of people have done it. One person named Brianna Borton, uh, who is a good friend of mine that I interviewed, she owns day spas and uh, she worked at a day spa. She looked at her boss and was like, I can do this better than you and then started <laughs> on her own, right? And so, and now of course she has a couple of businesses and she's, uh, she's an amazing woman. But looking at some of the other people too, some of them have found needs in their own life. So um, when they're going through their job, one of the guys, I'll give you an example, was Amos Winbush III. He was actually on Secret Mil ABC's Secret Millionaire oh, okay. not that long ago. Really cool guy. I've interviewed him two or three times. And his story sort of goes like this. He was a singer-songwriter. And he had uh, his phone, and it died, and it lost the backup. And he was like, well, this is not cool, <laughs> right? Like, like there needs to be a, a solution to this problem. And he didn't feel like there was a really adequate solution. This was a little while ago. And so he ended up creating, even though he knew nothing about software engineering, I mean, he was a singer songwriter, didn't, he had business background in terms of um, his parents were sort of entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. but he had a, you know, business manager to help him with that sort of stuff. Um, he started his own software company called CyberSyncs. 
And it's insane. It's been growing at such a rapid rate. I mean, it was ridiculous listening to him on ABC's Secret Millionaire, which everybody should check out. That was a really interesting episode, especially because I knew him. So I felt like it was cool. Um, <laughs> but but he was saying, I think he grew to like $200 million or it was like at least $150 million within like three or four years. Wow. Which is insane, right? And so being able to sort of see a need and then not being able to find a solution is definitely a key piece. So the third way is that they actually went out and asked, right? And I have an example in the book and I love this one too. So I interviewed a guy who ended up winning a um, an award, like a it was a contest for making the best business plan. And he made this business plan and he was like, oh, this is amazing. I won a $10,000, you know, marketing package. And so um, I should quit my job and go do this. Everybody <laughs> thinks it was a good idea. He goes, he quits his job. He goes to do this idea and it fails miserably. It was about having uh, uh, cameras, paying for cameras in daycares. So the parents would pay to watch their kids throughout the day. Um, That did not work at all. No parent wanted to pay for that. And so it wasn't, it was just sort of coming from him. Oh, I thought this would be a good idea. It wasn't. He tried pivoting. So he had all these cameras. He didn't know who to sell them to. So he ended up doing like a surveillance, trying to sell them to other business owners. Well, apparently the market was already pretty full of that. So he only sold a couple of those. He's like, man, I quit my job. (laughs) I have two failed business ideas. Now what do I do? And what he ended up doing was asking his market. So the people that he did know um, that I think it was that that they had bought um, surveillance cameras from him. He's like, what can I help you with? What can I do? And they wanted proprietary software. So they like they're like, OK, well, we need this thing to, to work in our business. And he didn't really know that much about software, but he was like, you know what? I'm going to go do that. So he assembles a team of people. He now has a company that does proprietary software for people. So he instead went out and looked in the market and asked them what they really needed. And they gave him a solution. Once he sort of looked around and was like, yeah, there's no real good solution for this. I'm going to start that. It's a need that's out there. That's the third way um, that people really go through and, and find those million dollar business ideas. Does that all make sense? Yes, yes. And, and it leads me to the next question. And, and, and you're already hinting at it, I think, a little bit. But I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. You know, we, we hear a lot about you know, finding your passion. Most of us have probably seen the Venn diagram where, you know, one circle is what is that thing you love or are passionate about? What is that thing you're good at? Uh, you know, what, what, what is that thing people are willing to pay you for? And you say in the book that finding your passion is a myth. When I first read that, I was like, passion is a myth? What? We hear so much about passion being a starting point and that the economic model is the last piece of the puzzle. But like Chris Brogan, who we talked to a few weeks ago, you say that you need to start with the need and work backwards from there. Definitely. So I, I sometimes have issues with people going, oh, you can sell anything to anyone. <laughs> I could be, you know, a knitter and make these crazy things that someone will eventually want, right? And, it, and I'm not saying that you can't do that. I'm saying it's a lot harder to do that. Mm. Right. And the thing that we don't understand is when we start to come from the place of passion, this is exactly what I did, which is why I sort of want to expel the myth. I went, what am I good at? What do I like? Um, I liked animals. So I was like, maybe I should do pet sitting or maybe I should, you know, random off the wall things. I had people and, and don't get me wrong. When we start looking at what your skills are and what you're good at and what you really enjoy doing, 
we have to dig a little bit deeper. But I was looking at like, oh, I love um, UFC or I love karate. Well, should I start a karate school? No, I definitely shouldn't do that. Right? <laughs> and so there's uh, most of the people that I know that have karate schools aren't making very much money and they're struggling. And while they love it, it's, it's very stressful. And so when I come about and answer this question, don't get me wrong. It's not as though that I don't want you to love what you do. Right. But I think what the problem that we see is that it has to be around our, you know, soul life purpose, which I don't think we have only one. I think there are many things that we can do. Um, and so it's not like, oh, my gosh, I have to find that one thing that I'm absolutely amazing at that will make time pass <laughs> forever. When you own a business, there's definitely pieces of that, but there's also not pieces of that. And we just kind of have to get real and go, OK, what I want to do is find something that a is a need in the market. And see how I can figure out what my skills and what my what those key pieces that make me different. How do we fit those in instead of me going, what's my passion, which is so you focused, right? Oh, right. I love running. Well, let's start a runner's club or, you know, what I mean? <laughs> that side of stuff is not really where it's at. I think we have lots of skills and lots of um pieces of ourselves that we love doing. I didn't even know that I was good at interviewing until I started interviewing. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I was horrible at it at first. It took a while, but now I utterly love it. And if I started from a place of what's my passion, what do I do? Which is what I did. And I started random business ideas that didn't make any money at all. <laughs> but looking at the millionaires, uh, I interviewed a guy named MJ DeMarco. He wrote a book called The Millionaire Fastlane, which if you have not had him on your show, his book is utterly amazing. Mm. Uh, and he's a friend of mine. And, and looking at what he says, he, to him, it's not about the passion at all. He's a little more total passion, not passionless, right? He, what he is really focused on is he's passionate about building businesses. Mm. And so for him, whatever that vehicle is, doesn't really matter because he loves the sales. He loves the marketing. He loves that side of it and the growing of a business. So it's not like he had a, uh, he owned limos.com, right? Well, he ended up buying it and all that stuff. He sold it for a lot of money. Yeah. And he was like, I wasn't that passionate about limos, <laughs> right? I worked for a limo company a long time ago, but I wasn't passionate about limos, but I am really passionate about learning and about growing and figuring out ways that, you know, people will want this better. And that's what I see too in, in people I work with in the millionaires that I've interviewed. They're just passionate about learning new things. One of the reasons why they like business so much is that it is changing, right? And there's always things you can be improving and you can always get better, which is sometimes a bad thing, but also most times a very good thing. And that's the stuff that gets them really, really excited. And so some of the guys I've interviewed, it's kind of funny. They only love the startup process because there's so much change. And as soon as it becomes routine, they would rather sell it <laughs> and start a new one. But they know that about themselves, right? And so what it is, it's uh, instead of looking at your passion, what we want to start doing is figuring out how your skills, how those things that you really love doing, not your passion, not your hobbies, but those things that you really enjoy, I love connecting with people and networking and all that fun stuff. How do we take those pieces and line them up with the needs in the market? So not the hobby and the need in the market, the, the, those things that, that are amazing to you that you might not know yet. And so jumping into something that isn't necessarily your passion, that will probably help you figure out what is your passion and what you like. And the, the, thankfully, when you own a business, you can have other people do the stuff that you don't like to do. <laughs> 
Right. And so like there are things in my business that I don't like. There are things in the millionaire's business that they don't like and they'll hire someone way better than them at it. And that's what you see in the million dollar businesses and plus. Right. They're they're able to recognize what their strengths are and they're able to cultivate those strengths. And then in the other things that they're not so good at, they hire some amazing kick butt people that really do know what they're doing and love that, too. And the more we can have that, the better the business is. And I've never really thought about you know, finding your passion is really having the potential to pigeonhole you into into one thing. I'm I'm hearing more and more recently about this idea. In fact, our, our mutual friend Jeff Goins has uh, just launched a podcast, and I think the name of it is Portfolio Life. This idea of doing multiple things. And I started thinking about you as I was thinking about this. And you're, you're a speaker, and you're an author, and you're a podcaster, and you're a business coach. And you're not just doing one thing; you're doing multiple things, all of which you you enjoy. And love, and I see that more and more as I follow authors and entrepreneurs and, and folks who are uh, sort of making their own game, as Chris Brogan would say. We are so lucky <laughs> that we get to do what we do. I interviewed Derek Sivers, and he said something that was really that struck me. It's in the book. Um, it's the fable about the donkey, right? And what I see a lot, and this was me too, so don't get me wrong. What I see a lot was. You look at your life and this, when I had quit my job and I was like, oh no, what do I do now? I was assuming I had to pick one thing that was going to be it for the rest of my life. And I was like, oh, I better, I better be right. right? I better <laughs> pick that right thing. I don't want to have to go through that. I picked wrong once. Yeah. I don't trust myself to pick right again. And what Derek said, which I thought was really, really interesting. He goes, you want to look at your life. You want to figure out a life plan. He goes, we are alive for so much longer than we ever used to be, Mm -hmm. thankfully. And what we end up doing is we're acting like a donkey. So he tells the fable of there's this donkey. He's dying of hunger and thirst. About 10 feet to his left, there's a bucket of water. About 10 feet to his right is a bale of hay. The donkey looks at both and he can't decide which one he wants more. And so, of course, he dies Mm. of hunger and thirst, right? He goes, what the donkey doesn't understand is that he can make one choice and then he can go and make the other choice right after. <laughs> and so when you look at your whole life, right? I'm 32. I'm saying how old I am on, uh, on the call. Oh. Um, I know, right? Jeez. <laughs> I just turned 32. Um, and so looking at my life, I would like to be working till at least I'm 65 because I love working. That is a long time, right? 33 years. That's a long time. I could do eventual millionaire for 10 of those years and still have 20 years left, Mm. right? I've only been in my career. I mean, I started one of my jobs at 22. I've only been in my career for 10 years and I've had two different careers, (laughs) right? So think about your life and going maybe in five year chunks. What do I want to do for five years? Mm. I can, if I have three different things go, okay, what's most important to start now? We can, we, not that we can do it all, but we can definitely do most of it as long as we have enough time. <laughs> I'm reading I'm in a mastermind group and reading in the book Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. And, and they talk about that concept of both and as opposed to, you know, an either or decision and thinking along those lines and realizing it doesn't have to be one or the other necessarily. It can be both. And and speaking of masterminds, it's a subject I know that you're particularly passionate about to mastermind groups, having a mentor, strategic networking, et cetera. As an entrepreneur, it's easy to think that you're sort of in this alone, but it, it doesn't have to be that way, does it? No, and I love that segue, by the way. That was really good. I can totally tell you've been on radio forever. <laughs> um, so <laughs> call it out while it, when I see it. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> 
I'm trying to cultivate that, right? I'm always looking at that stuff. So, so I agree with you a thousand percent. When I when I was in Maine, uh, not very many of my friends, or I mean, I didn't really have a lot of colleagues that were owned their own business. I felt very alone, and I talked to so many people all across, you know, the world. Actually, I mean, I have people in all over, um, not just in the United States, but that feel really alone, especially if none of their people really get this mindset. And so, if you're pushing through and everybody looks at you like you're crazy, you you eventually think that you're kind of crazy. <laughs> Right. And so the idea and this started because I remember that quote that we mentioned earlier, you're the you know, you're the combination of the five people that you most hang out with. And I looked around and I was like, I don't want to work a nine to five job. I don't want to have these influences. Not that they're not amazing people. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is I'm looking for people that are similar to where I want to be. Mm. And so I cultivated and I went, okay, how do I do that? I remember very explicitly like thinking this, oh shoot, this year I want to have a really higher quality network of friends, of people that are doing exactly what they want that aren't letting their excuses get to them. And I ended up going, I should start a mastermind group because I really wanted to get into this. And I had, uh, you know, read Think and Grow Rich and I, I sort of knew a little bit about the concepts. But when I started online, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I ended up emailing uh, a bunch of different people. I started on a forum. I found one person that said yes. The person that said yes to my very first mastermind group had actually wrote a book about mastermind groups. How funny is that? <laughs> so he sent me his book and we started a whole team of um, our mastermind, which has been, you know, since I've been online, it's been almost four years now. I think it might've even hit four years that I've been in this amazing, incredible mastermind with people that knew way more than me about this online marketing stuff. And it was really able to help get me to where they are now. So I'm eternally thankful to every single week be talking to these people. We're meeting in person at the end of this month. Um, again, for sort of a, a meeting of three days of like high quality masterminding, which is always fun. But knowing that you have these people that you can rely on is invaluable, especially when you normally feel so alone in owning your own business. I'm in one that meets face to face. In fact, we met earlier this morning. We meet at six thirty uh, in the morning. Uh, so it's it's a you know it's a relatively major commitment for some uh, just to get up that early and get to, to get to. Oh, you! you. That's impressive. <laughs> uh, but then there's one uh, that I do uh, that meets virtually, and it, they're very different. One's very structured. One's a little more loose. And uh, in the one that meets virtually, in particular, you, you reminded me of this. Is something you said is uh, both of those. Uh, it's two other guys. Uh, both of the uh, both of them have recently launched podcasts, and I've been able to help them on that journey because I've already been there and been through that process of launching. And, and then one of them is an expert just on the whole, you know, lead magnet, developing a funnel system, all that, which totally just makes my eyes glaze over. And so he's been able to help me with that. And I can't imagine what this journey would be like for me had I not had those groups of folks in my corner all along the way. So I, I cannot recommend doing that enough. It's something that I put off way too long in my own uh, personal journey. So I, I just want to echo what you've said. Well, it's so funny. The only reason why I have a podcast is because of my master. Ah. So Pat, uh, you, you know, Pat Flynn. So yeah. Pat Flynn um, was in my mastermind group and so is Marin Kate. Mm -hmm. uh, and she owned, uh, at the time she had a blog called Escaping the 9 to 5. Now she owns a company called Zirtual. And I remember chatting and telling during one of our mastermind sessions and I was like, you know, I, I'm not that great of a writer. Like it takes me forever to write these blog posts. And Marin was like, you should start a podcast. And both Pat and Marin had really amazing podcasts. Mm. I was like, you know what? I never thought about doing that. That sounds like a great idea. And then Marin goes, you should interview millionaires. Like, wow. 
I really should do that. I don't know any, <laughs> but that's a great idea. And so that's, I mean, in that mastermind group is where it sparked for the whole thing. I should send Marin flowers or something now that the book came out, right? I do mention her in the book, um, but but that that one little thought um, and they knew how to do it. So they were able to show me exactly how to hit the new and noteworthy list like they did and all that fun stuff too. So yeah, it's, it's sort of amazing to be able to lean on people that know more about certain subjects than you. And one of my gigs has been, and just these last few months has been Podcaster Academy, where I train uh, predominantly podcasters on how to be better communicators. And that whole idea came from somebody in one of my masterminds going, you know, you've got this radio background, you're doing a podcast. I bet other podcasters would appreciate, you know, knowing what you've learned in that business and being able to apply that to, to what they do. And so I went, you know what? That's that's an excellent idea. I think I'll do that. And so, well, and that's how I heard about your your Podcasters Academy, too. I was like, oh, he's launching something having to do with that. And they're like, yeah, he has so much radio background. I really need to know about that stuff. So it's not <laughs> about like how to start a podcast. It's about how do you actually do it? Because you had so much training. Mm. Podcasters need to know that because <laughs> no offense, but we're sort of hey, this sounds like a good idea. Just like my, my people in my mastermind group, I know nothing about this. You know, how to be a good communicator, how to interview, how to do any of that stuff to make it good for somebody to listen to. And yeah, we need to know that a thousand times over. And and the person I was chatting with, I can't remember who it was, but they were telling me how amazing the Podcasters Academy was and how, how you're, yeah, exactly, right? It's so nice to hear that other people are talking about what you're doing in, in an amazing way. So good job. Yeah, I love taking other people's advice because sometimes you don't see that. Too. Well, I wasn't looking for an endorsement, but I appreciate that very much. <laughs> Thank you. Obviously, Jamie and I are very passionate about mastermind groups, and it's probably as good a time as any to let you know that starting next week, you'll be hearing more about a mastermind slash book club that I'm putting together just for Read to Lead podcast listeners with the help of Sherry Griffin at the Biz Book Club. Again, more about that starting next week and the launch of a Read to Lead podcast mastermind slash book club. We're not even sure what we're going to call it yet. Launching later this summer. Well, what have you discovered, uh, Jamie, about the millionaire's approach to goal setting that is maybe different than the way the rest of us go about it? Or is there a difference? Well, one of the funny things when I when I interviewed the first 10 or, or 20 or so, I went back to my mentor and I was like, you know what? They say the same thing, <laughs> which is good, right? It's good to know that they said goal setting over and over and over again. And I was like, okay, I've heard this before. <laughs> no offense to them, but I've heard this before. What makes this really different? And a couple of the key things, I actually uh, outlined a whole different scenario. We talk about SMART goals all the time. In case nobody's ever heard of SMART goals, um, it's specific, measurable, attainable, you know, making sure that these goals are sort of set up properly, right? right? In In a timetable, all that fun stuff. The thing that I, I think gets missed, and that's why I created sort of a new framework called Covenant, which I know is so much longer, but <laughs> but it, it adds in the stuff that we don't necessarily uh, think about. Um, or I, I listened to Michael Hyatt's goal setting thing, and it's funny because he talks about smart goals, but then he goes, there's another caveat, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. So there's a whole bunch of other things besides <laughs> just the smart, smart goals. And that's right. what I found too. So some of the things that I've found were that millionaires keep their goals extremely visible. So it's not just like, oh, I wrote it down in a book and I never look at it again, or it's on my computer and it was lost. It is, you know, constantly in their minds and how they make decisions. 
in their business or in their life, right? So Frank McKinney, who runs ultra marathons, which is like 100 mile plus in Death Valley, like extreme temperatures, which is crazy. Uh, he goes, if I have this as a goal, I make no excuses. I go, the only time in my schedule I can do it, you know, is midnight. So he will like run at midnight. Right? <laughs> That's ridiculously impressive. He's like, but I know I have this goal. And so being able to sort of run your life based on those goals, instead of just sort of saying, hey, I have this goal, I hope it comes true. That's very different, right? So that's one way. If you don't have them up and visible, I'm getting a new whiteboard here because I, I had one back at my previous office, but now I don't have a new one in the new place. And I, I notice it big time when I used to have my goals set up in plain view. Anyone that came over could see them. I, you know, I didn't care. But now not being able to see them really makes a difference to me. I feel a little bit um, more all over the place. So I'm getting a whiteboard today. But the other piece <laughs> that I think is really important that I've noticed too is this accountability aspect. And I lean on my mastermind group. You probably do too. Mm. So it's not just about like, okay, I have these goals. It's about staying accountable to that too. And making sure that if you're not cutting the mustard, <laughs> if you're not like really going after the stuff that you say you want, because again, excuses, fear, whatever it is, you have sort of someone to call you out on that. Mm. Being able to have somebody sort of there in your corner, whether it be accountability buddy or a mastermind group or whatever it is and go, okay, you said you really wanted this. It doesn't look like you're really moving forward like you want. Why not? Um, is really important too. And a lot of millionaires have that sort of framework set up, even if it's their assistant that's you know allowed to call them out when, <laughs> when they're not moving forward like they want to. I'm curious to know too, Jamie, what has your coaching business taught you about patience? I know you share a little bit about this in the book. Oh yeah. It's, it's an amazing thing when you start really learning about communication and, and how that stuff works. When I started getting into this, um, I didn't realize how many nuances there were to things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, being an active listener, that stuff had never really crossed my mind before, which is great being a mom because you need to be or a wife or whatever. Um, but having that patience to be able to make sure, like everybody's on their own time frame. number one. Me telling somebody that they should be doing something or whatever doesn't really matter because we're all in our own time, time frame. We all deal with our own motivation differently. And being able to look at that and really honor where people are on their own right? Or honoring where my business is. I mean, I never move fast enough in, in business. Thankfully, I, um, I I have two small, I guess I can't say small anymore. There's seven and four. <laughs> and I would work 80 hours a week if I could, because I love what I do. Mm. Uh, because of them though, at the very beginning, I was only working at the most 20. Now I'm probably working about 30 or 35 because they're both in school. But being able to sort of know that and realize that like that was the choice I made. My business is going to grow s slower than somebody like John Dumas, who is my good friend, but can work 80 hours a week. <laughs> I'm always like, man, <laughs> I mean, I have a team of people too, which definitely makes it better. Yeah. Um, but being able to look at that stuff, I mean, these are choices. So I had to get up close and personal with my level of patience. And I have to remind myself all the time <laughs> that even, and, and it helps me with all my clients and all that sort of stuff too. You know, I made this conscious choice. And so if it's not growing as fast as I want it to, that's okay. 
right? I right. made it and, and my life is more about enjoying the journey than it is about, you know, pushing through and trying to be stressed. I've been talking about that lately a lot, right? Because dealing with the book launch and everything, it is stressful. Mm. And now I'm trying to take some time back and take some time off to really sort of recoup that. And if the business doesn't grow as fast, then that's okay too. Um, but being able to sort of recognize that and realize that it's my patient's muscle that needs to grow a little bit better, <laughs> right? I have a life plan. I've got plenty of years in front of me <laughs> to be able to do this stuff um, is definitely something I remind myself often. Well, I want to ask you a couple more questions, not directly related to the book, if I may. I'm curious to know among all the uh, leadership lessons that you've come to appreciate uh, in your 32 years, uh, <laughs> if you had to narrow the list down to a, a single theme or a central idea, Jamie, what advice would you give? I would have to say confidence. Oh, okay. Right? And the reason why, and I work with a lot of clients and I can see a lot of different, and in my own life too, I can see a lot of differences in being a leader. And if you don't have the confidence in your own choices, in your own actions, in, um, in your team <laughs> or whatever it is, or these people that you're leading, uh, if you don't think that they could do it, that, that side of uh, the factor will immensely change how you're received right? And how you actually act. And so I really think leadership is something that you don't get taught when you're younger. And I really think we should, right? We should be paying attention to that stuff a lot more. And definitely now that I have kids, I'm trying to sort of um, explain that stuff to see what their natural tendencies are, to see if they are um, the type that would like to lead um, and embrace that and try and let them know that it's not about necessarily um, second guessing or being perfect or right or whatever it is. I, I have perfectionism that runs in my <laughs> in my brain quite often. And so does my son. I mean, I remember uh, my book came out and he came home like crying one day saying that he's not good at writing. Mm. And I remember go. I, I was like, you know what? I'm not good at writing either, but look, I have a book. <laughs> I have really good editors. Right? <laughs> and so and that was, I mean, that belief that I, I had the belief for a very long time that I was not a good writer. I got the only C's I ever got in high school was in writing. Somebody told me I wasn't a very good writer. So I always sort of believed that I wasn't a good writer. My really good friend was really, really amazing at writing. She always wanted to write a book. The funny thing is she does not have a book and I do, which is weird, uh, right? It's not weird, right? I mean, I've been working really hard on this. Yeah. Um, but in general, it's not necessarily about that. It's about having that confidence to go, you know what? I can do that anyway. And I can show my son like, hey, look at this. I have a book. And I have the confidence um, now that, yeah, I can definitely do this too. And so he walked away from that conversation, thankfully going, oh, mom's not good at writing either. <laughs> <laughs> now, the funny thing is that, you know, the next week he wrote a book, right? So, I mean, Aww. he's seven. So, of course, it was, I think it was like eight pages, which is still really impressive for a yeah. seven-year-old. And so he's been writing Nate titles. He's like, okay, I'm going to come up with some titles for the book. And he had some really good titles. I'm like, this is, you know, being able to lead by example and to have that confidence um, to, to push through. And I know that's an example with my son, but it's the same thing when you're dealing in business, right? Being able to have that confidence of being a leader and being able to have the confidence that I can lead a group of amazing kick-ass entrepreneurs <laughs> that, you know, don't know everything yet, but um, are definitely making progress is, is an amazing amazing, wonderful thing, and I'm honored to do it. Uh, you've had the opportunity to impact a lot of people, uh, Jamie, with your work, uh, now with a book, obviously, and your podcast. And uh, at the end of the day, what do you hope your legacy to be that, that you want to leave behind? 
It was funny because I was doing these interviews and, and a friend of mine was messaging me on Skype one day and he goes, Jamie, you're going to change the economy. And wow. I was like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, and he goes, I want you to try and think about it that way. Right. Because if you start thinking about it that way, um, that all these people that you're helping get a hold of their finances, starting their own business, uh, hopefully employing people down the line, you're helping our economy. And I'm going, wow. And thinking of something that big and outside of yourself um, was really impactful for me. Wow. Because before, exactly. Right. Wow. That's, <laughs> thank you. Right. Um, so being able to look at it that way. Right. I always wanted to make an impact right after I quit my job. Um, it was in cable. Mm. And I remember one of my one of my coworkers said, you know, Jamie, we're not curing cancer here. <laughs> and I because I was stressed constantly. I was working 60 hours a week. I was like uh, freaking out over video on demand and cable. Right. <laughs> so seriously, it was sad. <laughs> but until she said that, I didn't real I didn't recognize it for what it was. I was like, you are very right. <laughs> this is not a life or nothing. Why am I freaking out over something that really isn't that big of a deal at all? And I wanted to start something. I wanted to have an impact on people's lives and not about just, you know, not having to drive to the video store. Um, but I think that that's sort of the piece that we can start looking at um, more. And if you can step into that, right, it's, you need a lot of confidence, to do, <laughs> especially something as big as, as what my friend Joe suggested. But whatever that is, I'm looking to really impact people's lives because I know how amazing it was for me and for my kids. Right. I'm not at this job that I utterly hate that I can't, you know, think about doing and then looking at my kids and going, they see me doing this, mm. right? And so if I can help, I mean, and I have, which is an amazing thing, help parents be able to show their kids what you, what is possible in life, like that starts to shift things. And I think that's really, really important. And I really hope that that's the, the legacy I'm leaving behind. Well, I think you're doing a great job at it. I wonder if you could uh, name for us, and that this is a podcast that you know espouses the benefits of intentional and consistent reading, uh, if you could name for us a couple of books you've read in the last few years that have had an impact on you and maybe share how or why they impacted you as they did. Definitely. I actually wrote a post, and maybe uh, I'll send you the link to it, okay. of all the books that the millionaires recommend. So mm -hmm. I found the 10 most recommended books for millionaires. Yeah. Thinking Grow Rich was actually one of them. Um, but there was a lot of amazing books on that list, so I can send you that too. Um, but I'm going to bring up ones that weren't on this list mm -hmm. that uh, might be, <laughs> they're not business books. Mm -hmm. um, one was called Untethered Soul. Okay. And that was really impactful um, talking about sort of our own brains and how we get caught up in our own minds and how to sort of separate our emotions from everything else, which was really interesting and thought provoking. So I thought that was oh. definitely a good book. Yeah. It, Srini just read it and said it was one of the books that changed his life forever. Cool. Um, so that's definitely a good book. And then there's another book called The Singularity by Ray Kurzweil. Mm -hmm. It is a mammoth book. I don't know. Have you ever heard of it before? I have not. No. Okay, so what it is, there's a, there's another book that might be more digestible um, called Abundance by Peter Diamantes. Mm. Have you ever heard of that one? I have not. No, you're, you're throwing out ones I've never heard of. Yay! <laughs> the guy that does the Read to Lead podcast. I'm so excited that I get to bring up new books You've stumped me. Yay! That was my goal. <laughs> So, so what these books are about is really the future. And I told you, I'm a big tech geek. I love looking to the future 20 years out. What are things going to look like? And it's not just, yeah, mobile is where it's at. Like it's, it's way more than that. It's looking at the speed of technology and how the speed of technology is exponential. And so we're getting faster and faster with our technology. 
And the book Abundance um, by Peter Diamantis really talks about how back um, when Nixon was president, Mm -hmm. the capabilities that he had in the White House are not as good as somebody standing in the middle of Africa with a cell phone and nobody around him. Wow, that is amazing to think about that. Crazy, right? (laughs) The amount, and that's just technology, and that's not that long, right? It's not that long. I love sort of not only paying attention to, you know, the future of business, but the future of technology and and thinking about the world that I grew up in compared to the kids that my my kids are growing up in, right? I had the the largest computer ever. We were on DOS um, or Windows 3.1, and then having my kids, you know, my son has his own phone, right? (laughs) That stuff is crazy. So when his when he's old enough to have kids, what is that new thing? And I get really, as you can tell, I'll talk about this forever. So I get excited about that stuff. So that's why I recommend those books for people looking uh, towards the future. So what's next for you, Jamie? What should we be on the lookout for from Jamie Tardy? What's down the road? So what I'm really looking to do is build more of a community of eventual millionaires. So I get so many emails every day of people sort of commenting, I am an eventual millionaire, but I don't have a really good way for them to be able to meet each other. So I'm working on that in the future by the end of the year. I really want, I mean, I've got people that email me and go save the date, right? I want it. My goal is to be on your show, which is (laughs) amazing. Right. And I, what I used to do when I had the time, I used to go, okay, give me the date. And I would have them give me a goal date, even if it was, you know, 2020. And I'd put it in my calendar Mm. and go, okay, I'll interview you at this time on this date then when you hit your net worth of a million dollars or more. And so, uh, and I started getting asked that over and over and over again. So we're working on a community of being able to have people with similar mindsets mm-hmm. all together, working and sharing our own resources. Cause just like that mastermind group, sharing those resources, sharing the stuff that we know over other people, I think makes a really big difference. So that's what I'm working on now. Well, Jamie, it's been a thrill to have you on the show. Uh, you are somebody who I've wanted to have on for quite some time and we uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be here. And I'm loving the book. I encourage everyone to pick it up. There's a link to it in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Jamie. We wish you nothing but success. Thanks so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. If you'd like to network with Jamie, one of the best ways you can do that is on Twitter. Eventual Million on Twitter is where you'll find Jamie. That's at Eventual Million. The Read to Lead podcast makes for a great conversation starter, by the way. Everything you'd like to know about Jamie and her new book, plus all the things we talked about today, including other resources, books, and links, can be found at the show notes page created especially for this episode. You'll find it all at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 038 for episode 38. Remember the free Podcaster Academy module being offered Thursday night, April 3rd, 2014. If you can't make it live, be sure to sign up so you can get the video afterwards. To sign up, be one of the first 20 people to do so because there's only a few spots left. Go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash free. And finally, if you could do one thing, I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast. In fact, if you write a review so I know who you are and give it a five-star rating, I'll mention you on the podcast as a way to say thanks. Thanks first to James Reynolds for his review on Stitcher. Calls it waffle-free. Gives it five stars. Says no fluff, no filler, only quality content from beginning to end. Thank you, James. Several reviews coming in this past week on iTunes from JWMBL, that's the username there in iTunes, says, great for your brain with five stars. Thank you. Aaron, A-R-A-N 101, says it's an absolute must listen and gives it five stars. Thank you, sir. 
or madam, as the case may be. Crumb Snatcher One says it's the fastest way to read for a busy dad. Thank you, sir. Pitch Perfect says C. Sebolero, referring back to last week's episode with Bill McGowan, no doubt. And Clark Danger at ClarkDanger.com says, Awesome guests, awesome show with a five-star review. Thanks to each and every one of you for that. I appreciate it very, very much. Well, that will do it for this week. I certainly hope to see you next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Tell a story about a man named Jay in a pole mountaineer belly kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food and up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Black gold. Texas tea. Now the next thing you know, Jed's a millionaire. The Ken folks said, Jed, move away from there. They said, California is a place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly hills that is swimming pools movie stars